2: a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri.
0: According to the American Cancer Society, For 2022, there are 65,950 new cases of cancer of the body of the uterus, uh, the uterine lining, uh, many different facets of the uterus. And today we have um, a pharmacist who has experience with endometrial uh, cancer. We're excited to be interviewing uh, Dr. Sarah Hayward. She's a clinical pharmacy specialist And she's with the um, University of Oklahoma, Stevenson Cancer Center in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Sarah, welcome to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast.
1: Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here today and discuss this information.
0: So endometrial cancer is one of the most common of the gynecological uh, malignancies. So this is an important topic today, and I'm excited that you're here. So Before we get started, just give a short overview of your experience um, with, um, with this specific type of cancer impacting women.
1: Absolutely. So I work with our Department of Gynecologic Oncology, so that's what we specialize in. And I'm their clinical pharmacist helping with patient care. And so that's predominantly going to be ovarian cancers cervical cancers, vaginal cancers, and then endometrial cancer. And as you mentioned, it is, of of all of those, the most common of the gynecologic malignancies. Um, But also one of those that we're generally able to catch earlier, in staging a diagnosis because of how it presents in patients. And so we have um, a, f- a fairly good five-year uh, relative survival rate compared to some of the other cancers out there. As far as diagnosis and treatment, it's, it's a multimodal approach. It involves uh, almost always surgery depending on the stage and then it can also involve components of uh, radiation therapy And then also systemic therapy, whether it be with what we're going to discuss some today, which is um, cytotoxic chemotherapies or um, protein-directed target medications or immunotherapy agents. Uh, We can also use hormonal agents as well in this particular setting.
0: I want to jump right into this. And the first thing I want to ask you, Sarah, what are biomarkers um, of of interest when selecting therapy for endometrial cancer?
1: There are certain um, biomarkers uh, that we look at to determine uh, a patient's course of treatment, potentially. And based on our guidelines, the ones that patients can be tested for, and it's it's very important that that patients with a diagnosis of endometrial cancer be tested for, are it's called microsatellite instability, uh, mismatch repair deficiency, and tumor mutational burden.
0: We really want to kind of dig more into um, the timing and uh, when should you know biomarkers be assessed and and all of that.
1: Sure, absolutely, and just to touch briefly on exactly what kind of some of those things mean, we can we can sort of talk about it as a whole. So um, these biomarkers, what they're looking at is um, mutations in the the DNA of the tumor, and the more mutations we see the better chance we have um, or what we see is uh, better outcomes from treating patients with these immunotherapy agents. Um, I read an article once that did a, used a really great analogy. So let's think about like one of the ones that I mentioned is um, tumor mutational burden. And what that means is, so as our cells are replicating and the DNA is being replicated, that's a lot of DNA, it's a lot of base pairs that the body has to do exactly correct. But unfortunately errors can be made in these little bitty sections called microsatellites. And uh, our body, inherently should has these genetic repair mechanisms that come back and check to make sure that that DNA was copied appropriately. Uh, Sometimes those systems go awry and they don't work. And that could be um, because you've inherited a gene that is is not functional or just by random chance of nature. And so what you have is a, a system that's unable to make those repairs in the DNA, leading to more mutations, leading to increased risk of cancers. Um, And then once we have a cancer that has a high rate of tumor mutational burden, we have possibly a better chance of seeing success with immunotherapy. Just to give a great analogy I read about that I referred to a minute ago is think of it like lottery tickets. If you buy one or two lottery tickets, um, doesn't mean you're going to win. So, so pretend a lottery ticket is the is the, the mutation. You buy one or two lottery tickets, it doesn't mean that necessarily you're going to win, but say you buy 100, 200 lottery tickets. You increase your likelihood <clears throat> of these medications, basically being able to identify these mutations and um, use your immune system to take care of those cancer cells.
0: So when I think of biomarkers being assessed and studied, should it be done prior uh, to treatment initiation or a different time?
1: I mean, that would be ideal. When you think about the way that we we treat um, endometrial cancers, a lot of the first line is going to be surgery. And so at that surgery, this is when we can get samples of tumor tissue for testing and that's an ideal time. Now, that being said, based on our current guidelines, we don't use a lot of these agents in uh, first line. Our first line go-to is going to be cytotoxic chemotherapy with paclitaxel and carboplatin. Uh, however, if you do have a patient that, um, it has a recurrence in their disease, that has progression of their disease. Um, this uh, has um, you know, presents with metastatic disease. We have this information to be able to guide us uh, with what we know can be a therapy that can provide them better outcomes.
0: Let's talk about screening and, and should all patients be screened or is it a particular group?
1: There's, there's not really any official screening guidelines for, for endometrial cancer at this point in time. And here's the number one thing that I will pass along to anyone out there that should pass along to any, um, if you're a male, any woman you know, if you're a woman, any other woman you know, is that uh, once you, if you ever start to notice any abnormal bleeding, especially after menopause, That's an immediate go-to-the-doctor situation. Um, That is when we can catch things early. That's just kind of one of our number one signs is um, abnormal bleeding or especially, very especially any sort of bleeding after a woman has gone through menopause. And something else is that with um, certain endometrial cancers being very hormonally driven, uh, we also have seen some um, increase in rates because of... Being overweight or or being obese, a woman, um, her hormones are all coming from her ovaries prior to menopause, but we can still get uh, hormone production in adipose tissue or that fat tissue, and so uh, this is also something that that um, we can see an increase just as we see uh, more more over people being overweight in our population.
0: I'd like to celebrate the fact that there are over six hundred thousand survivors of endometrial cancer in the United States today, which is uh, very promising. You know, I want to kind of go to the next question that I had, and that is really choosing the right treatment option. But how would you choose first line therapy for a patient?
1: We would choose that based on our national guidelines. Our preferred regimen is still paclitaxel carboplatin. The only exception we have with that is if a patient has a particular histology called serous carcinoma. And that's something that your pathologist tells you. But if we do see serous, what this gives us is the option of a targeted therapy. These patients can be tested for uh, what's called a HER2 positivity or or, or an overexpression of the HER2 gene, which allows us to use this targeted therapy, trastuzumab, which we've used in breast cancer and gastric cancer for years and years um, to better their outcomes. And then once we have a patient that perhaps who has had recurrence of their disease, we can then really start to look in that biomarker directed therapy. And this is where we have our uh, immunotherapy agents our pembrolizumab, our nivolumab, our Dostarlamab. This is where we have our combination. And the, those, those three that I mentioned, these are for those patients that have been identified as having a high tumor mutational burden, who have a high level of microsatellite instability. Um, if we don't have that information, either whether it be we don't have the information because we weren't able to get that um, biomarker testing completed, or it was done and these patients do not have those high levels of mutation. We have what has really kind of become our um, second line go-to, which is the combination of linbatinib oral therapy plus pembrolizumab infusion.
0: So back to the biomarker expression, we were talking about that earlier. The effect on the pharmacotherapies chosen. Can you elaborate a little bit on that?
1: We're able to get our biomarker testing done in our patient. We have their sample of their tumor cells. We can also sometimes look for these biomarkers with blood samples from circulating DNA that can be present from the tumor cells. Uh, this can guide us into which therapy we're going to use. If we do have patients with high tumor mutational burden, um, we can use a single agent immunotherapy this is for so preferred regimen this is per our, our NCCN guidelines that i mentioned earlier is going to be a medication called pembrolizumab um and this is used in a lot of different cancer diagnoses, but diagnoses but we also have other options uh we have nivolumab, which we can also use uh dostarlimab which just became available for use in this particular setting in in 2021 we have avelumab, which we can also use
0: you know i also wanted to ask about guideline recommendations um specifically for patients who um who have uh, the MSI high or TMB mm-hmm. that microsatellite instability um referring to that piece of genetic code in means um there's a lot of instability in the tumor um can you you know kind of touch on that as well
1: in our DNA we have a lot of these like replicating um base pairs that um if you think back to your your base pairs, once again, all the way back to biology, um, um, we can it it can these replications are prone to errors, and the more errors they have, the more unstable they become. And this is where we get that microsatellite instability because we don't have the repair mechanisms in place to correct them. These can be inherited, as in uh, it was passed down through your parents for something like a Lynch syndrome. Um, that can be passed through females, uh, or even males as well, uh, that predispose us to certain cancers, specifically endometrial cancer, just because we are not able to repair those that DNA. And the more um, errors we have, the more chance we have of developing, those developing into cancer cells.
0: Yeah, those mutations, um, the MSI status that really gives your doctor an idea of how the cancer is gonna behave, and it can kind of help to develop future treatment decisions and guidelines. Let's talk about the combinations of therapy because you've mentioned several medications uh, that are being used. So, you know, when combination therapies, what's recommended? When is that recommended?
1: Sure. Our very first combination therapy, which I've already touched on, which is going to be our cytotoxic chemotherapy, paclitaxel, carboplatin. Once we get into the recurrent setting or metastatic setting. Our go-to outside of the realm of a patient that that doesn't have that mismatch repair um, deficiency, a patient who doesn't have that high level of tumor mutational burden, a patient who doesn't have that microsatellite instability, our go-to has become pembrolizumab with a combination of linvatinib. And linvatinib is um, an an oral TKI um, that is taken once a day. And then we have our pembrolizumab, which is given as an IV infusion, which we can do either uh, every three weeks or every six weeks at um, a flat dose. And with this particular combination has been shown, which patients who do not have this high tumor mutational burden, we have better outcomes compared to some of our old standards, which were additional um, old-fashioned, if you will, cytotoxic chemotherapy um, but that being said, with these two medications, we have a different set of side effects and some combined side effects That's it's very important that the patient be educated on, that it's very important that the providers in the clinic be able to identify them.
0: So what are the most common immune-related adverse effects or immune adverse events observed in patients or immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy?
1: That's a great question and a great education point. So. The When I educate a patient uh, who's going to be receiving an immune checkpoint inhibitor, and this is, is kind of goes across the entire class for all of those medications that I mentioned earlier that can be used, is that I tell patients, this medication doesn't directly kill tumor or cancer cells. It enhances your immune system to use your immune system to kill the cancer cells. It helps your body to unmask those cancer cells that previously your immune system wasn't able to identify and take care of. And so what we do is we ramp up your immune system to take care of the cancer. Um, And what we have with that is we have an immune system that can sometimes get a little bit out of hand and start to cause inflammation or issues with other organs and tissues in our body that we're not really wanting. It can affect any organ and tissue in your body. Anything is up for grabs. Your immune system is all over your body. Um, But we have some side effects that are much more common than others. Those are colitis, which just means inflammation of the colon. So to the patient, that's diarrhea. And so it's very important that the patient know if they start to have diarrhea, they can use over-the-counter agents such as... Um, loperamide to help treat that, but it's very important that they let us know. And it's very important that we watch that closely for follow-up. Patients can also get assorted skin toxicities or dermatologic toxicities, uh, like skin rash, itchiness, and this can present on lots of different forms. And so I tell them anything that looks new or weird, we need to know about. The sooner we know about any of these side effects, the easier it is to treat, to mitigate, and move forward. Patients can also have uh, endocrine related toxicities, very specifically what we see most commonly is effects on uh, the thyroid. So it's very important to monitor thyroid throughout therapy, and this is for any patient whether they're already on thyroid replacement therapy or not, uh, because this is a very very common toxicity that we can see. Oftentimes, it's something that most patients don't necessarily notice, but we're able to catch when we're doing laboratory work prior to their infusions. Patients can also have damage to their liver and kidneys. So, hepatotoxicity and renal toxicity. Once again, this is oftentimes something that we'll catch on labs. But from a patient's standpoint, what I, I it's important for me to educate them is if you start to notice a sudden decrease in your urine output, if you start to start having, um, abdominal pain and flu-like symptoms. If you start to notice any yellowing of your skin or jaundice effect, these are very important that you let us know about. Uh, We can also see damage to the lungs. So we can get um, pulmonary toxicity or pneumonitis, so an inflammation. Uh, of the lung. And this is a very serious one. So also educating patients, if you have any uh, sudden onset shortness of breath or a new cough that's developing, you know, it it could be something different. It could just be your standard cold virus going around, but it could be because of this medication, it's very important that you let us know. And then my catch-all because this can affect any organ or tissue in the body is Anything else to you that seems strange and unusual, like just sudden fatigue, you just really can't do the things that you used to or sudden sudden weakness, like something that was usually, it was quite easy for you to carry your groceries in from the car, but now suddenly you can't. Um, these are all things that we, we need to know about. So as like, when in doubt, just let us know. It could be nothing, but we need to know.
0: So let's talk about the overall pharmacy care plan and treatment plan. And I'm thinking of how steroids can be used as part of adverse effect management. Can you talk about that? How long do you continue like prednisone, for example?
1: Sure. So our one of our primary treatments of choice for addressing an immune-related toxicity, and usually one of our first-line uh, agents, is going to be corticosteroids. And if it's a skin toxicity, this could be topical. Uh, but for most of our other... Toxicities. This is going to be um, oral therapy, so pills, tablets, and it's weight-based. So we use a patient's actual body weight and we dose them anywhere from 0.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram per day. And we do that until that patient's toxicity, whatever our toxicity is happening. Let's say they're having some hepatotoxicity. So their liver function tests are extremely elevated to a point where we've had to hold their map for example, and we have to administer this. And so we're going to very closely follow those liver function tests until they get down to what we would consider uh, a grade one. Um, that's kind of a different topic about grading. But uh, once we have that and we're maintaining it, we can begin to taper these corticosteroids. We do a taper over the course of four to six weeks. And what we found, and uh, and we've even made this mistake in, in our clinic early on with using these therapies, is if you do too rapid of a taper, if you do too fast, you try to just complete it over a week or two, we can often see a rebound effect of that absolute same toxicity. And so um, sometimes it's a bit discouraging to the patient, but you have to let them know that for the long term, it's it's for their, their greater good so that we can treat this appropriately and get them back on therapy. This is a great plug for the cl- clinical pharmacist or any pharmacist for providers out there that aren't quite sure how to do a taper um, is just decreasing by 10 to 20 milligrams um, every five to seven days, um, and also making it simple enough for patients to understand and not too confusing uh, so that they can have most successful outcomes with treatment of their toxicity.
0: All right, let's go back to toxicity. Can you share what types of toxicities that you're observing and, and kind of be specific around the medication too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, just focusing on the the linvatinib component. So, this particular medication, uh, there's a range of toxicities, and some of which can overlap with the pembrolizumab that it's being administered with. But if I was just to focus on this one, this is what I tell patients. Um, Toxicities that we can see with this particular medication are it can elevate your blood pressure. So, Routine monitoring of blood pressure is is very important. I always encourage patients, if they have access to a blood pressure monitor, to do a daily reading at rest. And the reason being is that we get a much better gauge of a person's blood pressure when they're at home at rest, they're not in our office um, with white coat syndrome being agitated and falsely elevating their blood pressure. Uh, With blood pressure elevations because of linbatinib, it doesn't necessarily mean we can't continue the medication but sometimes we do have to hold, we do have to adjust a patient's blood pressure medications if they're already treating with some or sometimes we have to add additional medications. Uh, we're also going to be monitoring their urine, looking for proteinuria. So protein we don't normally see in the urine. And this is just an indication of kind of things that are going on in the kidneys. We can also see diarrhea with this. And so that's something I always educate patients on. Once again, just go ahead and have some over-the-counter anti-diarrheal on hand. This is because no one wants to run to the store once you have that is that low paramide and let us know if it's occurring also being able to educate the patient on uh, how to use that appropriately um, educate the patient on staying well hydrated we can also see some nausea associated with this medication so one of my approaches for educating patients is uh, a take the medication before bedtime, because when you have those peak levels, you're asleep and maybe you can sleep through some of that nausea if it's going to occur. And B, also encouraging them to take prophylactically um, an anti emetic or anti-nausea medication 30 to 60 minutes before they, they take this dose. And also reminding, because sometimes I have patients think that's the only time they can use it. No, they're more than welcome to use those medications that we've made available to them throughout the day. But the important thing also is, is expectations for something like, nausea. You know, it's it's expected you might have some mild nausea, but our hope is we're able to treat it with those medications. If you're so nauseated you can't keep things down and you can't eat and you can't drink and you can't function, that means that there's a problem and we need to know about it encourage them to have open communication with your clinic about how to take care of some of these side effects. You know, other things we can see with this particular medication are um, elevations in liver function tests. And this is one of those overlaps we have with the pembrolizumab that can sometimes be hard to tease out which one could be causing it uh, that we have to be very careful of. Uh, Also, there can be effects on the heart or certain arrhythmias. So patients who have a predisposition or have some, some sort of existing, um, cardiac issues, especially in an arrhythmia, it's important to do EKG monitoring or be in contact with their cardiologist throughout this treatment. Um, and then one of the big things fatigue, just, uh, from a day-to-day standpoint, that can be very, um, problematic for these patients, educating them on what's, what's okay. Once again, it's about expectations. You know, we still expect them to be able to carry on with their life to the best of their ability, but they just might be more tired sometimes. And the longer we're on this, usually the, the easier it gets. And just letting them know that we have options for dosing adjustments as well. This isn't the only dose we have out there. It's just a matter of finding what dose is right for them.
0: Sarah, you've made this really easier, much easier to understand. So if a patient isn't tolerating levatnib, for example, could you describe how you manage that therapy?
1: Absolutely. Um, hold. And dose reduce. That's really kind of what it boils down to. I know that's not quite as simple as it sounds, but uh the 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 FDA labeled indication and the trial that uh the the, the, several trials that have looked at the combination of pembrolizumab and linvatinib, the linvatinib dose was 20 milligrams. And when this combination first came out, we used that dose in, in our clinic for our patients, and we found an amazing rate of patients being unsuccessful at that dose, and in talking to other centers, people also were having difficulty maintaining patients on that particular dose. And so now it's become commonplace at my center, and I know it's commonplace at other centers, to actually start patients on a dose reduction. And our our standard at my my center is a 14 milligram dose. The way the medication is packaged, it comes in either a four milligram or a 10 milligram tablet. So you have those options to work with whenever you're thinking about dosing. I know other centers who have started patients at lower dose and kind of um, escalate them. Once again, this is the approach to helping the patient be successful when they're starting therapy and not... Um, just having them have these major toxicities right out of the door and making them just stop and not want to even try again. But our approach is generally we start at 14. Uh, and then if we have toxicities, we will hold until said toxicity resolves and push the patient down to a 10 milligram dose. Um, after that, you can go down to eight. I know some centers that like to work in increments of four milligrams. So you've got eight, 12, 16 uh, that they're working with as well, just to, to kind of find that sweet spot for your patient and what they're going to tolerate and still have success with.
0: Thank you. Excellent. Let's talk about the combination therapies and how that toxicity issue also comes up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Specifically, I think what we're going to be talking about is that combination of pembrolizumab and linbatinib. Ah, yes. Uh, Something I forgot to mention earlier with linbatinib, now that we start talking about um, overlapping and toxicities, is with linbatinib, just as I mentioned earlier with pembrolizumab, one of those is thyroid function. Uh, We can see hypothyroidism develop because of linbatinib. We can see hypothyroidism develop because of pembrolizumab. Um, that particular approach isn't, isn't really the hardest. That's usually actually a pretty, pretty manageable side effect. We treat it like we would treat anyone with any presentation of hypothyroidism, which is to start them on um, thyroid replacement, usually with a levothyroxine at appropriate dosing. Other one is diarrhea. Um, frequently, w- the best way to distinguish is timing with this particular one. It can still be a challenge, but if we see diarrhea earlier on in treatment, it's more likely it's going to be related to the linvatinib. And not the pembrolizumab. You could also really delve into specifics and talk to the patient more about their diarrhea than they ever wanted to. But you know, also if they are having this diarrhea and we're seeing relief from over-the-counter medications or even prescription medications with something like Lamodil, um, we're probably also going to be more associating it with linbatinib. If we're not seeing any improvement with this, if we're starting, if it's very frequent, if patients have mucousy and bloody stools, we're going to probably lean more towards that pembrolizumab um, as our problem. Um, also, uh, liver toxicities. This can be seen equally in both of these. And sometimes what one could do is if one suspected that that liver toxicity was being caused by linbatinib would be to hold it and see if it resolves. Um, sometimes those liver toxicities, depending on their grade, if it's a very high grade, meaning those liver liver function tests are extremely elevated, um, it's it's sort of hard to tease out. And, and you might get to the point where you just have to assume it's the pembrolizumab and go down the route of the corticosteroids that we discussed earlier just to be better safe than sorry and so in that particular situation we've had to hold both the linbatinib and the pembrolizumab uh, because guidelines for both or from their package inserts or uh, guidelines for treatment of toxicity management are to hold until we get those lfts down to a closer to baseline Um, and then uh, for the instance of pembrolizumab. If they're on that steroid, we have to get that steroid taper completed versus the linbatinib, which uh, we would probably then initiate them at uh, the next dose level down.
0: Sarah, you know, a few months have passed since the uh, hematology and oncology pharmacy association event, the HOPA meeting, where you had a, a played a big part in that in presentation. So Talk to us about new treatments or anything that's changed in current treatments. And in kind of in closing today, is there anything new information that you can share with our listeners?
1: Sure. Uh, since since the meeting and with the recent uh, completion of the, the ASCO, annual ASCO meeting, uh, not a whole lot of changes in the world of endometrial cancer, really not not a whole lot at all. The only um, article I saw that came out of that was some additional information relating to um, long-term survival data or outcomes or progression-free survival for dostarlimab, which is one of our immune checkpoint inhibitors that we have For use in endometrial cancer for those patients who are mismatched repair deficient. And it it provided some information for those patients, for even using that medication in patients who are not mismatched repair deficient. And that was an interesting component of it. And so this was just data presentation at this time. So I'll be curious to see if anything different or new comes out of that.
0: Thank you so much for this wonderful information today. Absolutely. Dr. Sarah Hayward, we're so proud of you and also a shout out to, to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team. We always ask a final question for our listeners. What would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacist listening in today?
1: Uh, absolutely. In regards to this subject, good patient education and good follow-up. Um, in regards to this subject matter and any pharmacy subject matter, you can never know everything but you can definitely know where to look and who to ask. Use your resources wisely.
0: Well, I'm excited that you are here. We want to have you back. A shout out to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team podcast. Absolutely. Continuing education is evolving. Um, they've always been on top of it. It's been amazing and an honor to be working with pharmacists like you, Sarah, as well as the rest of their team. For our listeners, please go to PharmacyTimes.org for all of your uh, CE uh, needs uh, through podcasting and more. And we appreciate everything that you're doing out there. We know the stress that our pharmacists are under. If there's anything that we can do or the Pharmacy Times family can do for you, please reach out to us. We're all over social media at Pharmacy Podcast or at Pharmacy underscore Times or Pharmacy Times CE. And with that, we thank you for listening and can't wait for our next PTCE Pharmacy Connect.
2: Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.